Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. On this show, we'll discuss the practical applications of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, and disparities in health care. So today we're looking at one of those disparities in our health care system. The United States is the only developed country in the world where the number of women who die in childbirth is rising, and that's largely due uh, to maternal mortality in the African-American population. So according to the Center for Disease Control, black mothers in the United States die at three to four times the rate of white mothers, and that's the biggest racial disparity in women's health. A black woman with a college degree has a higher risk of dying or having her baby die than a white woman with only an eighth grade education. So here to talk with us about this is Professor Linda Villarosa from the journalism program here at City College, uh, the Media and Communications Arts Department. And she's a former Essence Magazine executive editor and a former New York Times science editor. And we have her on this week because just this past weekend, she had the cover story in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, and, and just to read what's on the cover of, of the magazine, the question is this. Why are black mothers and babies in the United States dying at more than double the rate of white mothers and babies? The answer has everything to do with the lived experiences of being a black woman in America. So... Professor Villarosa, thank you for joining us. And I'll say at the second half of today's show, we're looking at the roles that doulas play in combating maternal mortality. And for those of you that have not heard that word, a doula is a woman who's trained to assist other women during childbirth to help their babies when they bring them home. Doulas are helping to decrease the number of maternal mortalities and infant mortalities. So we'll examine the role of doulas uh, by having a, a doula, Chanel, Portia Albert joined the conversation in just a little while. And Chanel is the founding uh, and executive director of the Ancient Song Doula Services in Brooklyn. So, Professor Villarosa, welcome to From City to the World. We're really glad to have you on today. Thank you for having me. So, you do something in this article that I think is, is really quite wonderful, and I, I see it in, in, in really good science writing. You, you have a, a, a history, really, of the research on this topic, and you go through it in ways that are apprehensible, but you weave into that story the, the story of a, of a mother going through um, two childbirths, one that, that resulted in the death of, of her baby and, and her near death, and, and one years later that's more successful and, and that you're actually um, a, a part of. I, I love the way you've done that, and a lot of what we're going to talk about is how you blend the human story and, and, and the science in your writing. But let's start just by giving us a framework. Can you set up for us a little bit what the statistics are surrounding uh, uh, maternal mortality in the African-American community? Well, I had heard those statistics because they came out a couple of years ago, and they it was actually a testimony at the UN mm -hmm. because it was so reprehensible that it was a human rights issue. And so it's, but it seemed weird. I, I just really focused in less about what was happening in the United States and more about what was happening with black women. And when I saw that black women were three to four times more likely, I thought, why? And then also, it's actually worse in New York. New York is one of the worst places. Um, it's eight, black women are eight to 12 times more likely to, to die in childbirth than a white woman. 
And then with the class, I didn't understand also the class part of it. Why would an educated woman be um, more likely to, black woman, be more likely to die than a white woman with an eighth grade education? So, but what I started thinking was it has been long known about this disparity in infant mortality. And I started thinking most people aren't putting infant and maternal mortality together. But I decided to do that because I started thinking, well, it's just the one woman's body. Right. It's whether she survives and her baby survives, but it's really all, all of what is going on during what is essentially a human stress test, which is pregnancy and childbirth, is happening to one woman and is affecting her and her baby. And so that's why I really felt strongly about putting the two together. Yeah. I mean, as I said, the, the, the article is both a, a, a richly drawn portrait of this one woman's two pregnancies and what I think is, a, is an absolutely fascinating uh, exploration of the science around this. But let's, let's start with the story. The story that you tell um, most intensely is the story of a 23-year-old woman. Her name is Simone Landrum. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about her, how, how you met her and, 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 and what she was like. Well, it was very interesting. I met her doula first. Okay. So I met her doula in Brooklyn at Chanel's Decolonizing Birth Conference. And someone said to me, oh, I know you're writing this article. You should meet that woman over there. And she pointed to this woman who was surrounded by other women. It was a multiracial group of doulas who had come to Brooklyn for this conference. And I said, why is it important to meet her? And they said, because she's also a labor and delivery nurse who was turned off by the situation in New Orleans uh, around the hospital system and decided to do a social justice doula collective. So I ended up um, talking to her. I ended up going to New Orleans, and she introduced me to Simone Landrum. And um, this, when I met Simone, she was, you know, pregnant, quite pregnant. She, I guess she was about seven months pregnant. And I could tell she was not in a good way. She, was li- she had um, fled an abusive relationship, and the house she was in had no furniture. Mm-hmm. And so in the living room. So we walked through and there's just these cords. There's no TV. There's just cords lying on the ground. And so, you know, I was like, don't judge. Just keep going through. <laughs> and so um, then she started talking about the death of her baby, Harmony, um, the year before. And it was so sad and so tragic. You know, I was supposed to be being professional, taping and writing and crying yeah. because it was so moving. And I said, well, I'm covering the story about infant and maternal mortality. And she said, I want to be a part of it because I want to make a difference. I don't want anything like this to happen to anyone else. And I'd like to tell you my story. She sounds extraordinary. Could, could you give us sort of the broad outlines of, of, of the story she told? So she um, had... She had two children already. She has a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. And then she got pregnant again, but the relationship she was in was abusive. And so she um, also noticed that this pregnancy was different. She had swelling in her face, and it was very cute because she said, I could see it when I saw pictures of myself on Instagram, that my face looked really swollen, Uh and her hands were swollen, and her ankles were swollen. She also was having extremely bad headaches. And so the, she told her doctor, and her doctor just kept saying, take Tylenol, take more right. Tylenol. Right. And so she didn't know about preeclampsia, but these are two kind of obvious um, red flags that someone might be at risk for preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. So then, and which means um, high blood pressure during pregnancy. Right. So she went to the, to the doctor, and she 
complained pretty vigorously, probably about six weeks before she was going to give birth. And he just said, you know what, if you want to have your baby, you can have a C-section upstairs. And then she was like, no, I don't, I don't want that. Right. Um, and she realized that he was kind of threatening her. So two days later, she was in her car and she thought her water had broken. And she looked at the seat and it was blood on the seat. And so she got herself into an ambulance. She got herself to the hospital and she was lying on the gurney and um, the nurse took the monitor across her belly and she couldn't, there was no heartbeat. And so she was just sitting there screaming like, where is the baby okay? Is the baby okay? While she's bleeding. And then the baby was not okay. So the baby had died. They delivered the baby by um, C-section and she almost bled out. And so this was probably, I can't even imagine anything more tragic. She got pregnant again and she admitted to me that part of it was because she felt so bad from losing her baby who she named Harmony. And so with this pregnancy, she ended up with a doula and it, who was Latona, the woman I met, and they were a really, really good match because Latona is calm. She's experienced in the medical system, and she's very she has a healing kind of aura about her. And they were very good together because Simone was very afraid. She yeah. just kept going back to that trauma that she had had, but she was really committed to having a healthy baby. Yeah, and so you, as you tell this story, there there are a number of themes that come out, and 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 you read it and you think. Is this just what happened to happen to this one woman, or is something systematic going on? And so you look at the story, and there is the fact that she was being ignored by her doctors, and and and, and as you say, uh, almost threatened by a doctor. Um, the idea of of stress, how stressful it was to 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 be in this uh, in this situation. And so these are things we're going to talk about when we get to the science uh, part of your article. But I noticed something in the way you write the piece. I want to ask you a little bit about your journalism here. You're very much in this story. There's a moment after the the birth of her second baby when we think the story is almost over and she's she's healthy and, and happy. And all of a sudden, she she has this anxiety attack and... and, and, and we don't really know what it is, and 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 her doula figures out that it's because her other two babies aren't there, and and her family's not complete. And I'm reading the piece, and and then you write, I, you, Linda Villarosa, went to get the two children and brought them back in, and so you get this sense that, as a journalist, you, know, you said earlier you, you were trying to be professional, but you cried. But it looks like your approach to the profession is not averse to putting yourself in a kind of close relationship with your story and and, 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 um, and and being sort of fully part of the conversation. Can you talk about how you approach this sort of thing? Well, in my journalism training, we were taught there is no I in news, all kinds right. of things like that. Do not put yourself in the story. Right. It's the most selfish, self-involved thing that you can do. But after a while, I started realizing it was weird because I was in a lot of my stories, I am so closely linked to the people and I am so involved that leaving myself out is awkward and strange and wrong um, and false. And then the other thing is um, sometimes I will put myself in if I was even part of the early researcher, I learned something very early on because my editor says it shows that I'm really in this for the long haul and that I'm very knowledgeable and I've been doing this for a long time. 
But um, I was actually inadvertently, we thought Simone was going into labor um, 10 days earlier than she actually ended up having the baby. So I was in New Orleans way too early. So I was basically like her husband, best friend, mother, um, because I was driving her to the appointments because I had a rental car and it, it was very interesting. So I had a closer relationship than probably I normally would have to right. her and um, just got to be really worried about her and seeing that her life was hard and she wasn't always being treated well, even when I was there, right. which was surprising. Yeah, it is. It is surprising. You know, I've talked about this article to a number of different African-American women. And what's striking about it is how many of them say, I had the same experience. And, and so, so there's a kind of effectiveness in the way that, you know, we can see you in the room with a doula and, and, and the woman that you're writing about. I think, it's, I think it's, it, it's very effective. I neglected to say at the beginning of the show that this is a little bit of a different show for us. We normally do the show in the studio, but um, Professor Villarosa is teaching a class in race and media, and we are doing our very first live studio audience broadcast of this. They're being very quiet, so if you're listening, uh, you may not uh, know that they're here, but we're in the presence. <laughs> Of Professor Villarosa's race and media class. Um, so you are listening to From City to the World on WHCR 90.3 FM in New York. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of City College. My guest today is uh, Professor Linda Villarosa, and she's here with her race and media class, as I just said. And we are broadcasting from WHCR's event space. And we've been discussing her recent article in the New York Times magazine entitled Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life-or-Death Crisis. Um, professor, I'd like to now talk about the science part of thing. And there's a, you, you quote someone in your article who says, when you get to racism as an explanation for something, you can't just assert racism. You just say this is racism, people aren't going to believe you. The person says you need facts you need data to to make the case and what's what's really what's really beautiful about this is you 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 write the science half of this piece almost like a mystery you 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 know we we come into this conversation with a sense of well maybe it's because african american women tend to be poorer than white women or maybe it's because it's an educational disparity maybe there're all these different reasons that are different from as it says on the, on the cover of the New York Magazine, the condition of being a black woman in America. And ultimately, that's, that's the answer you come to, that this is really uh, a disparity that is directly tied to the experience of race in America today. And I wonder if, 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 if you can take us through the kind of um, preconceptions that you examined and the way in which the science exploded those preconceptions and led you to the conclusion you drew in the article? Well, it was interesting because even in my own career as an editor at Essence Magazine, I was assuming that this was strictly an issue of poor women and uneducated. And so even in the way I was working on health articles, I was addressing it that way until I saw the... and, And also poor women are very affected by this, and there's no shame in that, but... This wasn't the only thing. And so I got a rude awakening in 1992 when one of my professors in, in grad school handed me a study that was about, it was specifically about college-educated 
um, black women, and it was talking about this disparity in infant mortality. And it was that startling statistic that said, even if you have an advanced degree, you're more likely to lose your baby than a white woman with an eighth grade education. So I thought, what? I thought actually it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so I was so surprised. And so that got rid of that preconception. And then for a while, there was this idea that there was a gene, that there was a certain gene that black women had, and it was making our babies be small or preterm. But then there were two uh, doctors that their names are David and Collins. And they found out that when um, women from Africa and the Caribbean come to the United States, their babies are way the same as white babies. But after two generations, their babies are smaller. So the birth weight actually lowers, but for white immigrants, that doesn't work. Their babies get bigger. And these were often even women from impoverished settings in Africa. In West Africa. In West Africa. And Uh so that made no sense. Then it was then it was sort of like, well, people aren't black women aren't getting prenatal care. So there was this big push, mainly in the '90s, to get prenatal care to bump it up and to say, black women, you're making a mistake. You're not getting prenatal care. But then they looked at some other studies that said, wait, black women are getting prenatal care, are smoking less, are drinking less, and so are not doing things that would be harmful. And so that again was the wrong direction. And so after a while, it came down to, wait, stop blaming these women and families for what's going on and look at both the system in the country, the effect, you know, what it means to live as a black woman in America, as well as what it means to be a black person in the healthcare system. Right. So, so, so these two elements, uh, how the healthcare system treats you, and we see this in, in, in Simone's story of, you know, she's complaining about all of these classic symptoms and she's being given Tylenol. Yeah. Um, but there's something else going on here that, and, and it, it's, you know, you talk about it as, you know, the condition of being a black woman in America and the, the term that comes out in your work that I had never seen until I read it is this idea of, of weathering. Can you tell us what weathering is? So weathering is the idea that, um, because of racial insults and hardcore discrimination, it has an effect on the body and it actually makes the body older than it, the biological age. And so it, it was um, coined by this woman, Arlene Geronimus, who is a professor at the University of Michigan. And I, she's really wonderful, nice woman. And so I asked her, how did you come up with that term? And she said it was both the idea, the way a storm would, you know, like weather rocks and just grind them down, as well as how a house might weather a storm. So it's also, it's not just negative, it's also about resilience. And, um, but she was attacked when she first started um, looking at this, partially because she was looking at it in teen girls. And so in the 80s, people were saying, oh, the problem of infant mortality is a problem of teenage pregnancy. So if we just get these girls to stop young black women to stop having kids, then we'll get rid of the infant mortality statistics will change. But she actually found out that infant mortality in black women, not white, but black, happened a little bit older. It wasn't in teen girls. So people accused her of encouraging teen pregnancy. But she pushed on with her research, and then she widened it out. And in 2006, she looked at not just birth, but all kinds of conditions um, of the different systems of the body and found that in black people, and she looked at men and women, found this weathering was happening. And because of, and they, it was on a race scale, 
race and racism, the experience of racism, and she found that people who were experiencing more racism were the ones whose bodies were the most weathered. Uh-huh. I mean, I want to make sure that we catch this because it, it jumped off the page to me. You know, teenage pregnancies, which are supposed to be high-risk pregnancies, white girls um, uh, have higher maternal mortality rates than, infant mortality. Than, and infant mortality than black girls. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into the 20s, infant and maternal mortality rises with, with, with African-American mothers and it falls with white mothers. Because so, of stress. Because You've had stress. longer time to live in this stressful <laughs> America yeah. and so it's taken a, a toll on your body. Yeah, this is what I love about the way you write science is that you take a, a story or a hypothesis about what might be calling, causing something, and you, you do exactly what scientists do. Well, if this hypothesis is true, we should see this, but in fact, we see the opposite. Mm-hmm. And experiment by experiment, study by study, you take us to racism and, and, and weathering. And I, I, I think it's, it's some of the most lucid science writing I've ever seen. I, I, I really appreciate it. So what can be done about these racial disparities in, in healthcare? Well, you know what? I think that there are some things are being done. And I didn't go into, I wrote so long. I didn't have um, as much room as I wanted to because I went to a couple of medical schools and saw that there was a new generation of medical students um, who were really trying harder to look at these racial disparities, to push back around the, you know, some of the wrong things that they were getting in their education. Mm-hmm. Some of them were politicized in 2016 um, by what happened with Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin and this kind of thing. And there was this great group called um, White Coats for Black Justice in 50 medical schools around the country where these uh, they're forcing the conversation in their individual medical schools about racial disparities and saying, wait, we need to, this needs to be a part of our education so we are not taking our unconscious bias biases into our practices. And, you know, doctors are 75% of doctors are white. And so this is where the education has to start. Ultimately, your, your, your article becomes a story about the way a doula was able to intervene in, in, in the second pregnancy and the way that she approached really protecting um, the woman that you've been following this story. And, and it strikes me that she's doing two things. She is making sure the medical establishment is taking the concerns of the woman seriously. But she also has developed such a relationship with, with Simone that she, she's able to anticipate you know what might be causing her stress and how damaging that could be to her health or the or the baby's health are there ways that the that that second component the the kind of grounded understanding of somebody's life so that you can identify stressors can be incorporated in our into our approach to medicine well i think what's what's um fortunately happened to our approach to healthcare is the caring has come out of it because we have so much technology and we have so many everything is about interventions and everything is about a problem when childbirth is not supposed to be a problem it's supposed to be a natural process and so what um is beautiful about the doulas and other kinds of birth workers is that they are the people who are not just being advocates and not just providing information but also su- providing support and a kind of love and caring that is missing. 
And especially in a situation that's largely scary, um, childbirth shouldn't be that scary, but, you know, I have two children. It is scary and difficult. And it's nice to have, I didn't have a doula, but I had my mother right there. Um, and so, you know, it is important to have someone who you can trust, who has some knowledge, and especially with black women, because we know we're coming into um, pregnancy with um, health conditions, including high blood pressure more often than white women. And we're coming in in a, you know, distressed kind of way because of our experience of being a black woman in America, and perhaps a bad experience in the healthcare system already. So having this person to be with you is really wonderful and really important. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in this country, we haven't professionalized it in the same way, or we haven't incorporated it into our medical system, and have we aren't paying them in the way, we're not organizing them, it's not systematized. And so if that were to happen, I think we would see a change in some of these statistics. Mm -hmm. Before we go into our break, I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about your your broader body of work, because uh, the, the two pieces I'm most familiar with are, 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 are this piece. And about a year ago, you had another New York Times Sunday Magazine cover story about uh, AIDS in the African-American community in the South. And in both of these pieces, what's, what's really interesting is you're, you're taking a, a, a specific cut on a healthcare situation and say, you know, as we celebrate, for instance, the evolution of AIDS from effectively a death sentence into a, 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 a very treatable disease. If you look at this one population, there is a crisis that is unabated. And, and, and you're doing kind of the same thing in this piece. You're saying, it's a little bit different, because you're saying we are, as a nation, um, a country where maternal mortality has been climbing, and that's an anomaly in the developed world. But the reason for it is if you look at this segment of the population, if you look at African-American women, um, there is an absolute crisis going on. Um, so you have a, a kind of a habit of focusing attention on the crisis, you know, an unacknowledged crisis w w within a broader picture. And I wonder how you come to that and what sort of reaction you've gotten from, from people to... to your ability to do this kind of work? Well, I think that I always start with numbers. So when I see statistics yeah. that don't make any sense to me or that are wrong or feel unfair, that's I, I am drawn to that. And then, um, then I start to do the research and find out who's doing work in the area. And then usually I find some people who, you know, I can really wrap my arms around and really dig into their lives and see why this is happening on the ground. Because I think all those are important. Who's doing the work, who has the problem, and that it is data-driven. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really a numbers geek. Yeah. Um, somebody was talking, I was telling someone this, they were like, wow, you're really good at this. And I said, yes, I'm a numbers geek who has absolutely no boundaries so that I basically move in with people and see their life up close. I have their baby with them. At the AIDS piece, I was at the gay bar with all the guys, and they were like, who is that woman with you? And they're like, oh, that's the New York Times reporter. Yeah, just ignore her. Ignore her. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I love. And it's ironic. This My first story, my uh, AIDS story was called Americans, America's Hidden HIV Epidemic, and this one's called The Hidden Toll. So I said to my editor, am I just having a hidden series? It, like, But uh, th I do think a lot of the things that I write about are the issues that I write about aren't 
rising to the surface. Yeah. If I can ask, there's a moment in this piece, the maternal um, mortality piece, where not for very long, but you, you reflect on your own history. And I wonder if, if, if you would want to say something about that. Well, it was interesting. After I learned about the disparity in infant mortality and low birth weight, then I was pregnant, went to the doctor, and my baby wasn't growing um, right. as fast as her gestational age should have shown. And so my own physician, who I love and who's wonderful and brilliant, was really worried and sent me to a perinatologist who I didn't know. So the perinatologist was grilling me, and I'm like really healthy. I'm really into sports, and I'm, I eat right. I really care about good health personally. And so they're like, well, do you smoke? Do you use drugs? And then a new person would come in. Do you use cocaine? Are you, you, do you, have you tried heroin? I mean, it was really harsh. Yeah. Um, and finally, I was like, what is wrong with these people? And then I looked up what the issue that I was supposed to have, and it was an issue that happened to women who were um, doing those things or who had a serious illness. And so I ended up having a low birth weight baby. So my daughter Callie was born um, at four pounds, 13 ounces, and real small, and because she wasn't thriving inside of me. But I never understood why. It was not because of not taking care of myself. But I started thinking, does this have something to do with my own lived experience of being a black woman in America? Yeah, yeah. We are going to take a quick break right now, um, give everybody a chance to catch their breath, and we will be back after the break with our third member of the conversation, the doula Chanel Portia-Albert. We'll be right back, everyone. Welcome back to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, and I've been speaking with Professor Linda Villarosa in front of her race and media class. Race and media class, are you there? All right. And we've been discussing her article in the New York Times on maternal mortality among black women. And I'm really pleased. I thought we'd have two guests on today, but we actually have uh, three guests. Um, I'd like to welcome Chanel Porcher-Albert and her son, Caleb, to this conversation. If, you can, if you're listening, Caleb is about a year old, little death. Six months old. Um, um, Ms. Porsche Albert was a commodities broker in Manhattan's Diamond District before she was inspired to become a doula. And she founded an organization called the Ancient Song Doula Services in her living room in 2008 after attending a natural birth expo. And we are so pleased to have you with us today on the show. Thank you yeah, for coming. Thank you for having me. Chanel's attended hundreds of births all over the city, including here in Harlem, and her organization has grown to 17 black and Hispanic doulas, and you've trained over the course of your career many, many, many more. Yes. Okay. Um, so tell me something. Just to start us off, how does the role of a doula differ from the role of a midwife? What's ah. different about your work? <laughs> um, so it's, we have very distinct roles. And so the role of the midwife is... Um, She's providing um, the care in terms of blood pressure checks, vaginal checks. She's catching babies. Um, mm -hmm. So she's doing the medical side of things. Um, the doula is not doing anything medical, right? And so what we're doing is we're offering the emotional and physical support as well as the, the advocacy piece um, that could be missing, right? And, and really offering that continuity of care where the midwife doesn't necessarily they do spend a, a large chunk of time with individuals. Um, they're 
prenatal visits could be anywhere from 15 minutes to a half an hour to sometimes an hour. Um, but we're offering that continuity of care where they're missing those little bit of gaps, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and really um, guiding the individual until the, the midwife gets there to really be there and be hands-on in terms of the medical side of things. Yeah. One of the things that was striking in, in Linda's article, after you know we've, we've followed this doula through her work uh, for months into you know postnatal care and then you talk about how much she's made from that whole experience and it's it remind me it's like six hundred dollars for months and months of work you were a commodities broker in the diamond district (laughs) i'm not making commodities money (laughs) no you're not and here you are could you just tell us a little bit about your decision to make this life change and, and you know what motivated it and, and what it feels like on the, on the other end of that switch? Yeah. Um, so I have six children. Uh, my oldest is, I have a nine-year-old son. I have eight-year-old identical twin daughters. I have a seven-year-old daughter and I have a 21, 21-month-old daughter as well as Caleb who is six months. Um, and what really started me on that journey was my own birthing experience. And so um, at the time, yes, I was a commodities broker and I was going to see an OBGYN who was a woman of color and I thought that that was enough, right? That someone, if they look like me, then they could be able to connect and be able to understand. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the case. When I went to her, she was very sterile. And my partner and I, we wanted a lot more than that. You know, we wanted someone who was able to explain to us, like, the process of, like, what does it mean to go into parenthood? You know, what does it mean... Um, you know, there were certain things that we didn't want to happen um, during our birthing experience. We wanted to be able to have the freedom to do certain things. And my OBGYN wasn't, she was like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, and so I found a midwife and I had a home birth and it was a beautiful experience. I had a doula present and it really made me think about what about all the other women out there who don't necessarily have access to that, right? Because at the time I had private insurance. I can go anywhere I want, you know. Um, if insurance couldn't pay for it, I could pay for a doula out of my own pocket. It wasn't an issue. Um, but, you know, what about all the other women and women of color who don't necessarily know that? What if they don't even know that they have an option to have their baby at home? Mm-hmm. Um, and so just on that path, I took a doula training and it really opened up my eyes, you know. And I was like, what I what I found was a more rewarding calling. And being able to be of service to other women um, and being able to impart the knowledge that I've gained um, onto them, you know, so that they can feel or they can have the tools to empower themselves within um, their birthing choices and be able to make informed decisions about their care. Mm-hmm, so, yeah. in, in, in the article, there is a finely drawn portrait of, of, of the doula and, and her work. And the two things we talked a little bit about it earlier that she seems most um, needed to do. On the one hand, she's very gently intervening in the relationship between the healthcare professionals and the patient, mm-hmm. making sure the patient is heard, making sure that if they approach her with with something that's stressful. I, you, you talk, Linda, about you know, doctor after doctor after doctor and nurses and medical students come in and ask the same question that evokes the memory, the stressful memory of, of her, her previous birth. And you have the doula kind of stepping in and, and at one point took them outside and said, make sure everybody's read the chart before they come in. And, and so mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways, you see her identifying and intervening in uh, the, the, the medical care so that 
it's as, as, as unstressful as possible. And then you have her developing a relationship with the patient so that she almost is able to read the stress before it's manifest. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about those two elements of your work and, and, and you maybe give us some examples of, of, of how you've worked with patients. Yeah, I mean, uh, what I've realized is that we live in a society where we're not connected to one another, right? We don't look at each other in the eyes. We walk past each other on the street. We don't speak. Um, And a lot of times we're not seen. And, you know, at the end of the day, people want to know that they're heard. They want to know that they're being seen, that they're being listened to, right? Um, And and they're valued, right? Their opinions are valued um, and that someone is really genuine about the care and the wish that they're providing to someone. And a lot of times women of color, especially black women, are left with this um, feeling of being dismissed. Um, there's condescending attitudes in the room. And so the doula is is really that liaison between that, really. Um, I, I call us gatekeepers, um, in a sense, where we are helping the, the individual to advocate. We're totally alert of what's going on in the room. Um, and we're still able to offer that compassion and care because people, again, it's a simple process of just really just human, basic human connection, you know. And the doula is really trying to um, advocate for the basic human right to birth your child the way that you want to in a way that is it respects you as an individual um, at the end of the day. And and I would say doulas of color are doing that. You know, we are addressing a serious need within the community that says, you know, I'm not going to stand for, um, uh, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to um, stand for someone not just not listening to us. You know, you're going to hear me, you're going to see me, and you're going to understand that there's, because it has deeper Im- implications, you know. Earlier today, the uh, J. Marion Sims statue was taken down by the New York Academy of Medicine. There that went. Um and, you know, I said, I made the comment that this is just the beginning of reconciliation, right? It's just a process. It's just a starting ground um, to feeling um, some sort of um, happiness, right? Because there has been a long history in the medical model of care, which has used black and brown bodies in a way that have sub- subjugated them, that have taken around, taken away their basic human rights, Um and just basic healthcare in general, which a lot of folks, when you have the the power and the privilege, you don't have to necessarily recognize that, and and that's that stops us a lot from going and getting seeking the care that we need. And so the doula is re, is, is trying to reestablish that. The midwife is reestablishing the fact that you know we are here and our care matters and our lives matter. Mm-hmm. How important it is, is is it for you to? Um really understand the individual history of, 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 of the people. You spend a fair amount of time with mm-hmm. a patient before childbirth, and there is a kind of generalized stressful environment that you try to alleviate. But one of the things that was just so important in the article it was the prominence of how the experience of a, um, a, a baby that died translated into this woman's approach to her next pregnancy. And I wonder, when, when you see a patient for the first time, how much of that do you get into, what, you know, where she's been, what her fears might be? 
Yes. So that plays an integral role in how we assist someone, right? So we're talking to them about um, family history, about their own personal history, um, because triggers come up, right? We all have triggers. Um, a trigger can manifest itself in a color or, uh, you know, in a picture of some sort. And what we've realized is that everything, or what I've realized, is that everything that has happened to us since we have come out of someone impacts the way in which we deliver our own children. And so, you know, not just that, but also intergenerational trauma, right? We're holding on to that, that memory into, in our, DNA, our basic DNA. We are, you know, reliving that in stories from our grandmothers, from our aunties, from our own moms, you know, passing down stories saying, well, I had a cesarean because they said my pelvis was too small, so you're going to have one too, right? right? Um, and so we have to really, like, work with breaking down all of that to build up um, – a positive um, self-awareness around their own birthing experience. But then also realizing that just because you've had these conversations over a period of time, it doesn't mean that that stuff is gone. And so when we come into the birthing room, having those previous conversations around triggers, around mental health, around any form of substance abuse, around you know housing insecurity and finances, all of that comes into the birthing room. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're addressing that all simultaneously as the individual is giving birth. Um, and so it plays a, a, a huge role. I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your conference. You organized yes. a conference called the Decolonizing Birth Conference. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Decolonized Birth Conference came out of my own pure frustration with um, attending conferences that seemed to not center um, African women uh, or women of African descent and indigenous women. We would, I would consistently go to these conferences and, you know, there would be these individuals who happened to be white um, in privileged positions who were kind of dictating what they thought needed to happen in certain communities, but weren't listening to the people themselves. Um, and so I wanted to create a space where individuals who are working within their respective communities could come and they could share their knowledge and talk about the ways in which they are actively trying to shift the narrative of what care looks like within their, those communities. And so we have women and individuals who came from Canada, um, from indigenous communities, from Hawaii, um, from all over um, to really um, to teach, to learn, to share and give testimony as to why this was important, you know? And so I, it made me realize, like, this... Is, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Um, I'm not the only one who feel, who is frustrated with a system that is, again, um, just disregarding black and brown bodies and the way in which we choose to parent, you know, how we see ourselves, how we raise our children, um, and how we birth them on a daily basis. Okay. You are listening to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. My guests today are Professor Linda Villarosa and Chanel Poshia Albert, who is the founder of Ancient Song Doula Services. Um, and we're also with Professor Villarosa's race and media class discussing, there you are, <laughs> discussing the high rate of maternal uh, mortality among black women. And we're with Caleb, who's discussing his own program. <laughs> um, We'd now like to, for the last portion of the show, we'd like to invite members of the class to ask questions of, of either of our panelists. Um, we've got a microphone up here to the left, so just come on up to the mic and I, I uh, identify yourself and ask your question. Before we take the first question, shall let me ask you just really quickly, mm-hmm. you did one decolonizing birth 
conference, can we look forward to a second? Is this an annual event? Yes. Or an so annual event? it will be taking place again this year in September. So if someone listening is interested in attending, how do they... How do they contact so you? So we will. So there is the Decolonizing Birth Conference website. So it's decolonizingbirth.com. Um, um, you can Google it and look it up. And we'll have, we're having a Birth Justice uh, Summer Institute as well. And so if any of you students out there are interested in learning from other professionals within the reproductive justice, birth justice world, come on through. Okay, fantastic. Come on up to the microphone. Tell us who you are. It's and early, though. I had to beg and fight my way in. <laughs> yes, tickets do sell out very quickly. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Lana, and hi, Caleb. <laughs> and my question is for is Chanel, right? Chanel, yes. Um, I know doulas probably face some sort of like pushback from the medical team. Do you think the pushback is bigger if it's a doula doula of color, or <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> um, yes. So I have um, I've attended births for clients um, who are of color and white clients as well. And I've noticed the vast stark differences in the way in which they are treated. Um, and, and also, too, you know, so that we have white allies who come to us and say, like, listen, like, you know, I was serving a, a black client or a client of color, and I couldn't believe the way in which they were treated. But then when I said, like, oh, I'm their doula, you know, they were treated differently. Um, and so we definitely know that there is, you know, there's racism within the birth room, right? There's implicit bias within the birth room. And so some of the work that we've been doing and that I've been doing personally is working with providers to provide that education and curriculum shift um, to address these, these things, like so implicit bias in the birth room and what that means. Um, what about you as a doula? Do you find that they are more resistant they're, they're resistant to doulas, um, I think, in general sometimes, um, but especially a doula of color. Um, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. Um, and it's like, well, what do you know? Oh, like, how do you know, like, medical terminology? Why do you know about a certain procedure, you know? Um, you know, what place or do you think that you have within this birth room and this experience to be able to speak up or and, or give the the person the tools that they need to, to speak up? So, yeah, there's a there's some pushback. I haven't had huge, you know, grave situations, but I have had some pushback where a charge nurse can, may come up or someone and say, oh, listen, you're interfering with the birthing process. And you're like, no, I'm just providing information. So, yeah. 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 We have another Thank question. You. Hello, my name is Mars. Hi. Um <clears throat> I'm due next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, um, this question is for the both of you. Um, and you kind of touched on this, Professor, but just um, with your with uh, Chanel, uh, right? Yeah. Your first child, and with your children, um, with your daughter being, um, you know, uh, under the weight rate. Um, were you scared in like with having your first child and did you feel that you experienced some of these things that you ha you you notice when you're with other mothers um with their fears and um just not being heard um so i think i i think i chose home birth because i knew innately i didn't want to go through that right um i wanted to be able to have the freedom 
to be able to birth my child the way I wanted to. I think that naturally, you know, when you have your first child, there's these fears and anxieties that come up, right? You know, I'm thinking, I lost my mother when I was 14, um, and I'm like, oh, I don't have any guidance from, like, a mom to be like, oh, you know, this is how you do this, and this is how you do that. Um, And so, of course, like, some of that stuff comes up. Um, But, yeah, I think that we all carry our, our stuff, and when I say stuff, I mean, like, you know, our emotional stuff, physical stuff. We carry that with us, you know, and it plays a huge role, again, in how we birth our children. If someone has experienced, you know, some sort of sexual trauma, um, has been discriminated, um, you know, the doula is actively, and I won't say it's a specific type of doula. It's not every doula. So all doulas are not created equal. Um, but there are specific doulas and full-spectrum doulas and doulas at Ancient Song who are... Um, Working to address these these things in the birth room. So yeah, I think with me, I was I started getting scared once I knew I had this issue, and um, I told my mother, "Don't come. I don't need you." I was being Miss Superwoman, <laughs> and then my doctor said, "You know what? We have to get this baby out of you early. We you need we need to induce." I called my mom. Mommy! I don't call my mother mommy, obviously. Mommy, you have to come. Get on a plane now. And so my mom came and was with me and was very supportive. And my doctor herself was a personal friend. And so because I was scared. And I was scared the second time, too, because I already knew what it was like. So I was scared again. But I felt like, um, you know, I just did what I needed to do, made sure I had support, made sure I had friends around me, made sure I had my mother again and, you know, my partner. And so it was, you know, much better. So having the support for me was really crucial. Yeah, and it's important to create a network of support, right? And so, like, have people around you that are going to be there to help you to advocate for yourselves and who are supporting you. And so sometimes, like, you know, we want our family members there, but I, you know, sometimes they're not necessarily helpful all the time. And so that's when I send them my busy work. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, go go get some coconut water from Jamaica, Queens, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that you're not being disrespectful in any way, but you, and, you're, and you're allowed, you know, because I think that a lot of times a lot of fear comes from the unknown, right? We don't know what to expect. Um, and parenting is much like that. And I think that's where the doula is able to provide that, that network of support that you can need and you can lean on and, and help. <laughs> So we have one more question. I'm afraid this has got to be the last question. We're running out of out of time. Um, and as you approach the mic, I, I did want to say something that hasn't come out in the conversation. But you know, both in your article, uh, Linda, and and I, I know in the organization, a lot of these doula services are are available for free for for women. Not all, and it's not all, not all the time, but there are mm-hmm. services in the city that if you are um, if you're if you're pregnant, if you think you need the help of a doula, don't imagine as a first thought that, that this is something that won't be part of your life that you can't afford. Do some research because it is a, a, a it's a service and you know that is available because doulas are activists. Right? Last question. Um, so yeah, my question is going to be like really quick, but um, basically um, my question is like, can men be doulas? Is yes. That- uh, yeah. Yes. So men can be doulas, and we have two male doulas. Um, and then we have those individuals who identify as male who are also doulas. And so, um, yeah, I mean, they offer a great support to um, partners. Some of, them, some of them don't necessarily want to be in the physical birth room. They're like, eh, I don't necessarily know if I want to do that. But they definitely want to be able to support 
other partners through their process of parenting and what that means for them, right? Because a lot of times um, when individuals get pregnant, um, we kind of forget about that there's a partner, right? And I tell people when I see them, I'm like, no, you're both pregnant, right? You're both, <laughs> no, you are, because you're both going through this process, you know what I mean? And so I ask them equally as many questions as I ask the other person because someone else's fears and, and trauma can also play a role in how the birthing person is there and experiencing their delivery. And so it's important for us to have like a, a we have one big healing circle, right? So that we can um, address those things. So yes, definitely men can be doulas. And, and um, just to follow up, you know, doulas at Ancient Song, we offer free low cost doula services. We're a community based organization. Um, and we never turn anybody away, regardless of their ability to pay or not. And so that's important for folks to know. <laughs> so, so, oh, sorry. So I was going to say, so tell a friend to tell a friend to send a donation, right? <laughs> and if you have some, if you're having a baby and you're like, oh, you know, how am I going to pay for this? Like, you could always put us on your baby registry. And say, like, listen, like, you know how you want to support me? Like, pay for my doula. Because doulas give up a tremendous amount of hours. Sometimes we're working for, like, 36-plus hours. Sometimes I've been at birth for four days. Um, yeah, four days. <laughs> and, um, and some of us are getting paid zero to nothing. And so it, it's definitely a labor of love. But it also should be something where we, could, we should be able to get an equitable wage. And so... Um, yeah, demand doula services be covered by, like, Medicaid and demand that, you know, funding go towards doula services, especially those doulas who are working within communities of color. I think uh, giving the gift of doula service at a baby shower is a fantastic idea. Let's... um. Everybody here, just tweet it. Send it out on your social media. <laughs> Make sure that this is something that people um, know they can do and decide they want to do. Um, thank you for listening to From City to the World. I want to extend a really warm thank you first to Professor Linda Villarosa. Um, I, you know, th this article, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't read it, it's the cover story of the New York Times Magazine. You can go online and find it, but I, I, I recommend you do. It is beautifully written, and it is an absolutely yes, important is. topic. Um, and I'd like to also thank um, Chanel Poche Albert and Caleb from <laughs> Ancient uh, Song Doula Service for joining us. Um, and you've already told our listeners where they can get information on your conference. But I um, wish you great success in the second annual Decolonizing Birth Conference. Um, and I'd like to thank all the students in Professor Villarosa's class, race and media class here at City College for being such a good audience. The show is produced by the great Angela Harden. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of City College, and look forward to talking to you again next month from City to the World. Thank you for listening.